Welcome to the CanMed Coffee Talk podcast, where we talk with the leading minds in cannabis science, medicine, cultivation, and safety testing. I am your host, Ben Amaralt. I'm the marketing manager at Medicinal Genomics and proud member of the team that puts on the CanMed conference. All right, here we are. We're in November already. And you know what that means. The holidays are right around the corner. And with that comes a lot of things to do. Got people to buy for, parties to plan. Wouldn't it be nice if you could check something off your to-do list right now? Well, you can. You can register for CanMed 23. If you haven't already heard, CanMed 23 will be taking place May 15th through 17th at the Marriott Beach Resort on Marco Island. This industry-leading event will feature three full days of cannabis science content from more than 30 presenters and instructors representing our key focus areas of science, medicine, cultivation, and safety testing. And new for CanMed 23, we will also explore psilocybin and psychedelic mushrooms. Now, due to the limited capacity of our new location, CanMed 23 is an invitation-only event, and we expect that it will sell out. So, if you've already gotten your invitation to CanMed 23, please register and get that off your to-do list. And if you haven't, head over to CanMedEvents.com now and request your invitation. I hope to see you there. Our guest this episode is Dr. Ziva Cooper. Ziva is the director of the UCLA Cannabis Research Initiative in the Jane and Terry Semmel Institute for Neuroscience and Human Behavior. She is also an associate professor in the Department of Psychiatry and Biobehavioral Sciences and Department of Anesthesiology at the David Leffen Institute of Medicine. Her current research involves understanding variables that influence both the therapeutic potential and adverse effects of cannabis and cannabinoids through double-blind placebo-controlled studies. One of the variables Ziva and her team are studying is the difference between men and women in their response to the abuse-related and pain-relieving effects of cannabinoids and the role that circulating hormones and endocannabinoids contribute to these differences. And that's the subject of our conversation today. We talk about the key differences in how cannabis affects males versus females, how females metabolize THC differently than males, cannabis use tolerance differences in males versus females, how female reproductive hormones play a role in sensitivity to THC, the importance of placebo-controlled studies, and male versus female differences in self-reporting pain, side effects, and more. Before we get to my conversation with Ziva, I want to thank this episode sponsor, Planetary. Planetary is the first and only organic certified water-extracted CBDA. Female-founded Planetary is truly plant-based wellness designed to keep you moving and playing. As the only company to use water extraction, Planetary keeps CBDA in its raw living form, the way it's actually grown in the hemp plant. CBDA is 18 times more bioavailable than CBD and is a powerful anti-inflammatory acting on the same pathway as NSAIDs like ibuprofen. For more information, visit planetary.com. That's P-L-A-N-E-T-A-R-I-E.com. Okay, and without any further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Ziva Cooper. 
Good afternoon, Ziva. Thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. Ben, thanks so much for having me on the CAMED Coffee Talk podcast. It's great to be here. All right. So today we're talking about sex differences when it comes to cannabis. And I got the idea for this topic because we were going to, I was excited to have you on the podcast and I was looking through the many publications you've authored and co-authored. And I noticed one of the most cited is Sex Dependent Effects of Cannabis and Cannabinoids, a Translational Perspective, uh, which I thought would be a great topic to dive into. Um, and I noticed that there are other papers in your in your repertoire who that explored sex differences. So I, I imagine it's a topic that's that's close to your heart, or at least <laughs> um, very important to you. So I guess my first question to you is: Why do you feel it's an important topic to explore when it comes to cannabis? I think in general there is an increasing awareness of how important it is to look at both sex and gender effects across medical research at this point, right? So it's interesting. I was looking at some some of the landmark cannabis studies back in the 1970s, and all of those landmark cannabis studies involved only men between the ages of like 19 and 30. And I just oh, think wow. that, you know, since then we've evolved so much um, in our appreciation for really understanding how biologically um, and also culturally how important it is to understand across, you know, pharmacological classes and across different medical health endpoints, um, the differences between men and women or males and females. And so, you know, cannabis is definitely not any exception to this. And it's especially relevant given the fact that there's been a sharp increase in cannabis use among females over the last decade and specifically medical cannabis use. Um, so we're starting to see that a lot more women are starting to gravitate towards using medical cannabis for specific indications. And that even more gives us you know, the real justification and need to understand the effects of cannabis and cannabinoids between both men and women and understand if there are differences and why there might be differences between the two sexes. Great. And so what I imagine one of the main differences could be, and you can tell me if this is the case, are there sex differences when it comes to the endocannabinoid system? Interesting. Um, so we know that there are fluctuations of endocannabinoids across menstrual cycle phase. Um, so, you know, we know that even in women themselves, if you just take them, that their endocannabinoids are going to be changing over the course of, of that month, at least in um, premenopausal women. We don't actually know very much about um, how these, how the fluctuations in, um, in postmenopausal women, and of course, this is becoming a area of interest, especially since a lot of women are turning to cannabinoid-based products um, for uh, perimenopausal symptoms. Um, there's been some documented studies looking at the CB1 receptor in humans um, using imaging techniques and how those receptors change over time and how there are differences as a function of sex um, and age. So, you know, we're learning more about the endocannabinoid system. And I think that um, some of the key studies that that have 
try to understand differences in the endocannabinoid system between males and females are a lot of them are based off of you know the pharmacological studies. So understanding um, differences between males and females in their response to THC and what are some of the um, hormonal modulation of those differences of THC. And so, so that kind of gets at sex differences in the endocannabinoid system. Great. Okay. So let's, let's talk about the effects of cannabis and how they may differ. So what are some of the key differences that have been observed when comparing how cannabis affects males and females? The key differences thus far that we know of, um, again, I, I always like to to turn back to the animal literature. Um, and a lot of that is, is rooted in that, in that one paper that you first talked about. Mm -hmm. We've learned a lot from the animal literature with respect to how males and females might differ. And what we're doing now in the human lab, those people who, who study humans, volunteers in the laboratory, is we're really trying to translate what's been observed in um, the animal studies and to see if those effects are are preserved or translated to, to humans. So some of the key things that um, preclinical researchers or animal researchers have found um, is that across the board, female animals seem to be more sensitive to THC's effects. Now, you know, THC has a lot of different effects. And what's interesting here is that females seem to be sensitive to a lot of those different effects. So it's not just one endpoint, it seems to be um, a number of different endpoints. For example, females appear to be more sensitive to the pain relieving effects of THC compared to males. And here again, we're just ta we're talking about animals here. Mm -hmm. Female animals are also more sensitive to what we call abuse related effects of THC and THC like drugs compared to males. Now, what's interesting um, in those animal studies is that although there's clearly um, a sensitivity to THC and to, to THC-like substances in female animals compared to, compared to males, what's interesting is that when you, when you give these groups of animals THC or THC-like substances, um, these drugs repeatedly for many different days, um, let's say for two weeks or three weeks, what you see is that both groups do develop tolerance, right? So the effects of the THC will um, be lower such that you'll, you'll need higher doses to achieve the same effect that you get with that first day of drug administration. But what's interesting is that among the female animals, the tolerance is much more stark. So the females seem to develop tolerance at a much faster rate or at a higher magnitude than the males. Um, and we see something very similar um, in, in our human studies, and we can go into that a little bit, Ben, um, sure. if you like, um, where what we've found, um, this is similar to the animal studies, where, you know, females, um, women, uh, will actually show a blunted um, pain response when exposed to THC, or I'm sorry, a blunted analgesic response when exposed to THC compared to men. But what's interesting is that we see this specifically in, in people that are using cannabis every day or almost every day. So we're, we're dealing with a population there that is 
that is using cannabis on a daily basis and presumably probably more tolerant to THC's effects than let's say somebody who's using weekly or maybe, you know, bi-weekly. Um, what's interesting also is that in, in that group of people, we're not looking at people who, who have a chronic pain condition. We're, we're looking to see in a normal, healthy population, if we look at a pain response um, due to a painful stimulus, will THC decrease that pain response? And so we see that pretty clearly in males, but not, but not in females. Hmm. And so we're building on that now to understand um, how much does tolerance play a role in that effect? So do we see the same effect in people that don't use cannabis every day or several times a day? And also, to what degree do the, do the hormones, do female reproductive hormones play a role in, in differences here between the males and the females? Excellent. So now you mentioned animal studies versus human studies. So are you seeing a lot of the results in the animal studies, um, you know, confirmed by human studies or is there a departure there? So thus far, based off of the, the studies in, in our laboratory, um, as well as other people's studies, it does seem like there's an inter interesting kind of parity here between uh, the animal studies and the human studies. So it doesn't always work out such that um, th what's observed in the animal world is necessarily translated into humans, right? I mean, humans, a mouse is not a rat, is not a non-human primate, is not a, is not a human, right? So we have, there's, there's, a, there's a, a long chain of evolution here. Um, and so it isn't always the case that what we see in the rodent model is gonna be translated to, to humans. But there are some really nice, um, data suggesting that there is some nice translation between between animals and humans here. And, and one of these areas um, is with respect to how males and females metabolize THC differently and how pharmacokinetics and the way that the way that THC is metabolized or the pharmacokinetics of THC, we think probably has a um, direct effect on its impact on physiology and behavior, right? So if somebody metabolizes THC very quickly into metabolites that are inactive, then that plays a role in what we're going to see on the behavioral endpoint, the physiological endpoint. And so what's nice is that um, other labs, so lab in Johns Hopkins uh, with Ryan Vandry and um, Spindle and and Scholler and others, they you know they've found in humans that um, females uh, metabolize THC in a different way than males in a very similar way that that's been in show, that's been shown in um, animal studies as well, where females um, will show higher levels of an active THC metabolite after THC administration compared to males. Um, so that active metabolite is 11-hydroxy-THC. And the group at Johns Hopkins also sees this effect where females will show greater 11-hydroxy-THC levels after being exposed to THC compared to males. So there, there have been some nice parallel, parallels there as well. Excellent. So males and females actually metabolize THC differently? I have that right? Yeah. So based off of animal studies and, and based off of human studies, um, as far as, as we know right now, you know, it does, it does seem like they are metabolizing the THC differently. Now, why are they metabolizing the THC right. differently? That's like a, 
you know, that's an important question. It, it could have to do with the, um, the metabolic enzymes. They might be different in both, in both um, the animals and the humans with respect to males and females. Um, it might have to do with other, other aspects that impact uh, metabolism. Um, in our lab, we were looking at uh, differences in how THC is metabolized or the pharmacokinetics of THC between males and females to try and understand why there might be a behavioral difference. So why it is that males and females might respond differently to THC on the pain relieving um, aspect of things, as well as um, other aspects like mood related effects, abuse related effects. And we're also looking to see if maybe some of these differences are due to differences in um, endocannabinoid levels. And so we're drawing blood from women to see if the differences that we see between males and females, if they're somewhat associated with differences in baseline endocannabinoid levels, or is it, you know, are differences really rooted in uh, levels of female reproductive hormones, which is an interesting variable also because in animal studies, um, there's data to suggest that um, estradiol uh, plays a significant role in the sensitivity to THC in mm. female animals. So it does seem like female reproductive hormones do play a role um, in sensitivity to THC. Great. And now, how wide is the difference? Yeah, I mean, you say that, you know, females are more sensitive or they metabolize THC differently. Is it vastly different? Is it slight? Right. So in science, we say significantly different, right? Okay. <laughs> so, right. <laughs> um, but no, so here's, here's a sense of things, um, Ben. Um, this is one difference. And again, we're, we're probing this right now to figure out what variables are underlying this effect. And it's something that I mentioned before where in our volunteers who are using cannabis daily, and again, they're not medical cannabis users, they're using for non-medical reasons, but when they come to our lab and we give them cannabis with THC in it specifically, I'm not talking about other cannabinoids at this point, when we give them uh, cannabis with THC and we look at the pain response between males and females, essentially we see a significant um, analgesic effect in the males uh, such that, you know, it's significantly different from placebo. If you, if you looked at the data, you'd say, okay, they, the males in this group, the male volunteers in this group are getting some pain relief here. When you look at the females, the, the female volunteers after smoking cannabis with THC in it, essentially they look like they just received placebo. So placebo mm -hmm. cannabis with no THC. So there's really no difference. They're not getting um, any type of that uh, pain relieving effect of THC that the males are getting. And so in that case, it is quite a stark contrast wow. between the two. We have, and keep in mind, again, these are people who are using cannabis every day. And so we think that there's probably a development of, of tolerance. The development of tolerance is probably different between these two groups, the males and the females, um, as shown in, in animal models, where in animals, when you expose them to THC every day, the females will show this robust tolerance to the pain relieving effects of THC that the males show, but not as, as significant of an effect. There are other aspects where we don't necessarily see such a stark contrast. Um, so for example, um, among some of our female volunteers, when we ask them how 
how the how much they like the cannabis, you know, what kind of good effect they have. Um, they'll they'll rate that cannabis as having a good effect to a higher level than the males, the male volunteers. And that's also it's similar to what's shown in the animal models. But it's not as as dark of a difference as, you know, what we see on the pain relieving end of things. Um, so I think that depending on the endpoint, depending on the person, um, depending on how much cannabis they've been using and for what reason they've been using it, mm. we'll probably probably see differences in the magnitude of how much sex plays a role in cannabis's effects. Um, and, you know, it's, it's going to take time to work out what are some of the variables in play here. Um, but it will be really important information, I think, um, as more women are turning to cannabis for pain in this case, right, for, for pain relief, understanding, you know, what, what can people expect with respect to the dose that might be helpful, the mode of administration. So here we're just talking about um, inhaled cannabis, right? What happens when they use it orally, right? And so that's a that's a very different metabolic process that occurs when people when people are using THC orally. And so it, ultimately, the hope is that this information will be helpful in informing people what they might expect um, when they use THC and other cannabinoids for pain relief, both for the pain relief side, but also you know potentially for some negative aspects as well. So, you know, it's been shown that group in Johns Hopkins has, has shown that females might be more sensitive to the anxiety provoking aspects of THC, right? And so that's something important to relay to, uh, to the community as well, is that, you know, females might be more sensitive to that aspect of, of cannabis as well. Yeah, no, I think that is important. And now I want to I want to talk about, you know, the difference between animals and humans again, because correct me if I'm wrong, but when you're measuring the effects of cannabis in humans, a lot of it's self-reported, correct? Where, you know, the, the patient is telling the researcher, you know, yeah, it reduced my pain or yeah, it gave me anxiety. Talk a bit about the difference between males and females in how they, re they self-report. Because when I spoke to Denny Mary on the podcast a while back, he, he, observed th that there was a difference that, you know, the females might be reporting more information or have more thoughtful right. responses. Yeah. And then the males need a little bit more prodding to get to get right. the information out of them. Yes, Ben. And I think that, you know, you're hitting the hammer on the nail of how important it is to do placebo controlled studies, especially when you're relying on something like self-report. Right. And so when you do a placebo-controlled study, what you can do is you're essentially looking, if it's a what's called a within-subject design, where the person is exposed to all the different drug conditions. So in a placebo-controlled study, they're exposed to the placebo drug, and they're also um, exposed to the active drug. So in this case, let's say it would be cannabis without THC and nothing else, our placebo cannabis, and then our cannabis with THC. And then what you would do is you can subtract out the placebo response from the active response. And so there you're, you're actually looking at people as their own controls, hmm. right? And so, yes, females, they might 
showed differences with respect to their self-reported pain or their or their self-reported um, um, anxiety uh, or how good of a drug effect they have. But presumably, they would have a similar um, a, a similar self-reported um, behavior, self-reporting behavior under the placebo situation as well, or under the low, the very low cannabis dose, right? Whatever, whatever you're doing in our, in our lab, we generally look at a couple of different doses. And so you're able to kind of subtract out that type of effect, but you're right. So animals are, are, you know, they're, they're good test subjects, right? Because, um, you don't have to worry about if they're blind to the dose. Um, you know, you're, you're really looking at objective measures of, of behavior there um, that you can that you can you know feel good about the data and say that you know these are objective you don't you don't have to worry about the animal telling you things but at the same time at the end of the day you know when you're talking about patients and you're talking about thinking about how certain medicines might be helpful or you're thinking about um, uh, symptoms and disease states it is so important that the patient can communicate to the physician or to the scientist or the researcher about what it is they're feeling, right? So, you know, when somebody talks about pain and, and a objective measure of pain, what to what level does this chronic pain patient have an objective measure of pain versus what they're telling you? How, how And how much pain are they? How much pain are they feeling right now? When you're giving them a medicine you know, to help reduce their pain, hopefully, you know, you're really trying to get at that, you know, what they're, what they're telling you they feel, you know, so having an objective measure of pain is important, but really, you know, their self-reported pain is really critical. And also understanding how that self-reported pain might be impacting their quality of life or their daily functioning. And so those are other proxies that I think are really important to address when doing, you know, randomized clinical trial of chronic pain patients and understanding how cannabis and cannabinoids might be helpful. So having a, a range of endpoints there, not just self-reported pain, but also understanding how is that pain impacting, you know, the holistically their life um, from, from that lens. Right. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, we're just trying to help people feel better, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So I wanted to shift a little bit and maybe talk about how males and females use different cannabis products. Um, is there much information around that? So Ben, I think that um, there there are data, and you know, I'm I'm terrible. I, I forgot. I can't I can't recall a good study that has looked at how you know, women are using cannabis products versus men and what the, you know, are there differences? Like, are do inhaled cannabis, even though there are lots of different products available now, inhaled cannabis is still the, the most popular mode of administration at a population level. But what we hear is that, you know, from media sources and, you know, anecdotally is that, you know, females, women might be using um, oral cannabis products, um, they might be, they might gravitate towards those more than inhaled for X, Y, and Z reason. But, and I can't, I don't have a good paper to, you know, usually like I, I like to pull out those peer reviewed publications and say this researcher in this place, 
demonstrated that females use this mode of administration more than males. Um, I will say though that, you know, as the cannabis market is evolving, we are starting to see products that um, are available specifically for medical indications in women, right? And so some of these products are geared, the, the, the way that they're administered are specifically geared to females. Um, and so you can imagine some of those different products that might be geared more towards females that don't really, aren't relevant for males. Um, and I don't necessarily know, you know, the rates of use of these types of products among females. I think it'll be interesting to see over the long term, you know, as there becomes some generalizability with respect to what's available across states, right? Because right now states are functioning very differently and, you know, there's one product that's available in California, but it's not available in yep. New York City. I think over time, as, you know, the dust settles and there is, um, there is some continuity between the types of products that are available across states, it will be interesting to see what types of products females are using, what are they using them for um, compared to males? And how do the motives or the reasons for use differ between males right. and females? Um, and, you know, as an example, like there's certain um, health indications or, you know, medical issues that are more prevalent among females than males, for example, fibromyalgia, right? So um, more females have fibromyalgia than males. And so what type of products are, are those patients uh, drawn to? We have a, um, a study, look, we haven't talked about cannabidiol yet, but we have a study here at UCLA um, that I'm working on with uh, a principal investigator who I, um, who's really wonderful. Her name is um, Vina Ranganath, and she's a rheumatologist, and we have a study looking at cannabidiol for rheumatoid arthritis. And what we're finding is that, you know, as expected, we have a lot of females in that study just because, you know, rheumatoid arthritis occurs at a higher frequency among females than males. And so, you know, that's an example of over time, we're going to see how different um, males and females might differ with respect to their reasons for cannabis use, as well as the type of cannabinoid they're using and the mode of administration. Yeah, you're right. We have been, the, the conversation has been centered a lot around THC. So what do we know about the other cannabinoids? Are there sex differences there as well? Yeah, and even in the preclinical literature right now, Ben, um, you know, this is an area that is so new. Uh, as far as I know, you know, the one or two studies that have looked at cannabidiol and sex-dependent effects in, in animals, they haven't really found stark differences. Um, and I know that uh, there's been a study um, comparing males and females with respect to cannabidiol, inhaled cannabidiol, again, this was our colleagues at Johns Hopkins, um, that show that females might be a little bit more sensitive to how the drug makes them feel, how cannabidiol makes them feel compared to males. But, you know, this is just kind of the tip of the iceberg, you know, cannabidiol, understanding how males and females differ in their response to cannabidiol. What about some of the other cannabinoids that people are using now, people are being drawn to, for example, cannabigerol, CBG, um, CBN. So we're seeing in California, you know, CBN is becoming 
more popular. People think that CBN might be helpful for sleep. Mm -hmm. um, so are there sex dependent effects with CBN? What about terpenes, right? And yeah. so, you know, we're starting to see an emerging market of cannabis-based products that have specific terpenes um, in them. And so are there sex dependent effects with terpenes too? And the truth is, is that it's hard for me to hypothesize if there will be a difference because even in animal studies right now, there haven't really been good efforts to understand if there is a sex dependent effect in part because the studies on those cannabis constituents are kind of just starting also. So, you know, I think that preclinical researchers are now just trying to get a hold of what do these terpenes do? What do these minor cannabinoids do? And then to try and delve into, you know, are there differences between males and females? So there's a lot of work being done in this space. And I think there is a lot of attention being paid to how sex can impact um, the biological effects, physiological effects, um, effects in the central nervous system uh, so over time, I think we'll, we'll get a better picture of, you know, what's happening as a function of sex. And then also, you know, we didn't talk about sex versus gender, you know, and I think right. that's also a really important topic that um, as scientists, the scientific community as a whole, I think we're just kind of waking up to, you know, understanding does gender, how somebody, you know, defines their gender um, not sex as a biological variable, but gender, you know, can that also impact um, how people use cannabis and cannabinoids and what the outcomes might be? And I think over time as well, we're going to see uh, some nice data in that area, um, specifically because I think that the, the funding agencies are starting to pay more attention to this as well. So, you know, this idea that, you know, there can be sex-dependent effects of, of drugs, um, you know, we're able to really look at this in part because there is funding available to, to study it because uh, there's clearly an interest and a need for it. And there's also funding from federal, federal sources. And now, you know, the NIH is, is becoming very interested in gender as well as sex. So it'll be, you know, interesting to see how the stories, how the story unfolds over time. Yeah, for sure. And I've been trying to be precise in my language and, and, say sex and male and female, but I did want to, you know, ask the question too, that, you know, we've talked a lot about the biological differences and are there cultural differences that could be playing a role here? And that would sort of factor into gender identity. Absolutely. And I think that, um, you know, when we think about sociocultural differences. I mean, you could take, you know, the United States as an example. I mean, even with respect to, you know, what, jurisdiction you happen to live in. And if that jurisdiction um, has cannabis dispensaries, is there um, a perception of stigma around cannabis? Because that will also, you know, impact what people are using and yeah. how they're using it, how open they are with their physicians to talk about it. Or are they in a place where there's dispensaries on every block, right? And so that just in and of itself, like, you know, you're where you are geographically, who, who you are um, socializing with, what is your family like? What is, um, what's your occupation, right? Um, all, all these different aspects are going to feed into, you know, who is using cannabis, for what reason, 
Um, and what are some of the health and social outcomes of, of their use of cannabis? Um, will it be helpful or will they feel like their, you know, their use is um, stigmatized and um, will it have to be done, um, you know, secretly for whatever reason, or are they, are they scared of um, law enforcement? All these different things I think are going to go into over time, you know, what is the impact of, of cannabis use on health outcomes? Right. Yeah. A lot of things to consider. All right, Ziva, before I let you go, I want to give you a chance to um, mention any other papers or resources uh, that you could share with the audience if they want to read more or, um, and then for you personally, if there's social media or a website that you'd like to plug, please let us know. Ben, thank you so much for the opportunity. So one thing I would just like to plug, we talked a little bit about this in the very beginning, was, um, you know, the importance of looking at age as well as sex. So, so we know that there has been a really sharp increase um, in cannabis use among the older population. Um, And we know very little about the impact of, uh, you know, the pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamic effects of of cannabis in in the older population, just because they haven't necessarily been studied um, very much. And so understanding, you know, the effects, the potential therapeutic effects, potential risks associated with cannabis use in that older population, but also as a function of age. So like I said before, we know from animal studies that, you know, reproductive hormones play a role in THC's effects. Well, what happens, you know, when, when we reach an age where, you know, circulating hormones change drastically, right? Specifically in women who are perimenopausal or postmenopausal. And so at UCLA, we are, we're, we have a grant to actually look at this question that we're really excited to look at, not just, you know, inhaled cannabis with THC, but also look at oral THC administration as well. So to try and understand, you know, differences across mode of administration. Um, So we're really excited for that. And, you know, just a plug for our center at UCLA. So the University of California, Los Angeles, we have a center for cannabis and cannabinoids. Um, in that center, we have our, our lab um, that does uh, controlled drug administration studies, but we also study cannabis from a public health perspective, public policy perspective. It's a, a really wonderful center. Um, so, so, you know, feel free to look us up, UCLA Cannabis. Um, and then, you know, we have a Twitter handle as well, although we're not that good about, about keeping up with it, but it's UCLA Cannabis. So thank you so much, Ben, for having me. This was a really wonderful conversation. Yeah, I really enjoyed talking with you. And we'll put links to all of those resources that you mentioned in the show description. So it's easy for folks to find. And yeah, thanks again, Ziva. This has been great and hope to see you out in CanMed. Great. Thank you so much. You too. hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Ziva Cooper. Check out the links in the show description to learn more about the topics we discussed. And thanks again to this episode's sponsor, Planetary. Our next episode drops December 7th. That's two weeks from today. In the meantime, please do check out the new and improved CanMedEvents.com. The team really did an exceptional job updating the website with all the information about our CanMed 23 event. 
And of course, you can still find videos of all the previous CanMed presentations and panels in the CanMed archive. You can also find all the previous episodes of the podcast as well. And while you're there, make sure you sign up for email alerts to get all the notifications around this innovative industry-leading event. I also invite you to engage with us on all our social media platforms. We're on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Just search for CanMed Events. And lastly, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Doing so really helps us improve our rankings and reach more listeners. All right, that's it from us. Stay safe, stay healthy, and be sure to join us on the next CanMed Coffee Talk.